The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. British people, and Londoners in particular, are known to be resilient and resolute. They're famous for maintaining the stiff upper lip in the face of violence and threats to peace. They keep calm and carry on. Some say this is British stoicism at its best. Others argue that in this modern age, the pace of life in metropolitan areas simply doesn't allow for a city as a whole to come to a standstill even after experiencing terrorist incidents on a mass scale for the victims and survivors of terrorism and their families, there is no question that their lives are forever changed by the impact of such trauma. Yet all around them, people continue to go to work, care for their families, and live their lives. Not because they lack compassion or the ability to appreciate that others' lives have been touched in a tragic way but because they collectively refuse to be inconvenienced by attempts to interfere in their way of life. London is no stranger to terrorist incidents with a long history of targeted attacks. The Irish Republican Army, 
or IRA, has been orchestrating and executing attacks in the English capital city and across Britain, going as far back as the 1860s. This intensified with the extremist group's sabotage campaign in 1939, resulting in over 300 terrorist incidents. The period of civil unrest, known as the Troubles, which began in the early 1970s and continued into the early 2000s, killed 50 people in London alone. In July 2005, a series of carefully planned suicide bombings in central London rocked the city. On the Underground Railway, known as the Tube, three bombs detonated on separate trains as they traveled between stations. A fourth bomb exploded on a double-decker bus, taking commuters to work. The bombings were planned and executed by three British-born Muslim extremists and a fourth Jamaican-born man who had converted to Islam. 52 people died, and over 700 were injured. Two weeks later, four more bombings were attempted, again, on three underground trains and a bus. Thankfully, only one person was injured due to the failure of the detonators to charge and explode. For many years, public places where large crowds gather were, and still are, popular targets for acts of terror. Airports, train stations, and government buildings implemented increased security measures to protect both staff and the public. There is no question that British intelligence and security services continue to have their work cut out for them, prioritizing and managing potential threats to national security. At any one time, British Security Service MI5 is investigating several thousand individuals who are linked to extremist activities in Britain. But in the last seven years, the style and manner of terrorist incidents in London itself has evolved into newer and more confronting methods of intrusion into people's daily lives. These methods represent a new threat in addition to the large-scale bombing attempts typical of the past. Counterterrorism experts have noted this shift, from plots coordinated by groups of individuals to those planned by what are called self-starting terrorists. These individuals may be in contact with other extremists, but are not necessarily tasked by terrorist organizations. Their plots are less sophisticated, but the intent remains the same, to strike fear into the hearts of ordinary citizens. What makes these self-starters more difficult to detect is the independent nature of their planning and execution, making it easier for them to fly under the radar. Over a six-month period in 2017, a total of 18 people died, and around 125 people were injured in five separate attacks by self-starting terrorists. Targeting Westminster Bridge, the perimeter of the British House of Parliament, London Bridge Borough Market, Finsbury Park Mosque, and Parsons Green Station, People were attacked on the street by extremists who drove vehicles into pedestrians and stabbed strangers at random. In November 2019, a man stabbed five people near London Bridge before being shot by the police. As recently as February 2020, police shot a man dead after he stabbed two people on a London street. But before these incidents came the events of today's story, which marked a turning point as one of the first chilling Self-starting terrorist occurrences. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. When I grow up, I want to be a soldier.
On July 4, 1987, young married couple Philip and Lynn McClure from the northern English city of Manchester welcomed their first child, Lee, into the world. The couple hadn't long been wed when Lynn and their son, Lee, who was only three months old, moved in with Lynn's mother. Though only brief, the marriage had been a tense one, and Lynn and Philip eventually divorced. Lynn had a close existing friendship with Gordon, the brother of her estranged husband. This relationship gradually developed, and the pair went on to marry and have two daughters, Sarah and Chelsea. Lee was a very proud and protective older brother, and he and his sisters became inseparable. The family of five made their home in council housing in the Manchester suburb of Rochdale. But sadly, the marriage ended when Lee was around eight years old. Lee's mother, Lynn, later told the Daily Mail newspaper that growing up, Lee was a bit of a daredevil and very mischievous. In her book, Lee Rigby, A Mother's Story, Lynn tells how from the time Lee was a toddler, he was obsessed with the cartoons and characters of Walt Disney, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and the Thunderbirds. When Lee was five years old, he told his mother that he wanted to join the army. Lee's uncle Mark had served with the British Army, and Lee idolized him. A lifelong passionate Manchester United football fan, Lee was a spirited but thoughtful child. One particular year, he conspired with a family friend to surprise his mother with a birthday party. But as Lee grew into his teenage years, both he and his family found things challenging. Lee experienced learning difficulties, which caused a significant amount of behavioral disruption and tension both in the home and at school. Lynn was at a loss to understand what had turned her usually loving son into a temperamental preteen. Lee became prone to angry outbursts that were completely out of character. Then in 1999, when Lee was 11 years old, Lynn met Ian Rigby. Ian's calm and stabilizing influence were a great support in bringing Lee's behavioral issues and hair-trigger temper under control. Much to Lynn's relief, Lee and Ian developed a close relationship, and when Lee was 14 years old, his mother and Ian married. When Lee turned 16, he took Ian's surname as a mark of their special bond. The new blended family soon welcomed a daughter, Courtney, followed by another daughter, Amy. Three years later, when Lee turned 16, he left school and entered the workforce. His goal was to earn and save his own money until he could enlist in the army at age 18. But when the time came for Lee to sit the army entrance exam, much to his disappointment, he failed. Not once, but twice. He couldn't understand it. Everyone knew Lee knew that he was intelligent and capable. It was only when the recruiting officer discussed the matter further with Lee that it was discovered that Lee had dyslexia. This is what had been the root cause for his disruptive behavior at school. Lee's frustration at being unable to understand what his peers found straightforward manifested itself in troublesome behavior. But now, with this information and the appropriate tuition, Lee passed his army entrance exam on the third attempt. He was over the moon that his dream of serving his country was coming true. Lee commenced his infantry training in North Yorkshire, where he became known by the nickname Riggers. His charm, mischievous sense of humor, optimism, and energizing sense of fun quickly endeared him to the soldiers in his unit. It was easy to see why Lee was popular. His love of socializing and getting to know people regardless of their background reflected his good nature. 
Upon completion of his military training in 2006, Lee was assigned to the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. Known for their distinctive red and white hackle or the plume attached to their headdress, Fusiliers are an armored infantry regiment, having seen battle in two world wars, Korea, Northern Ireland, the Gulf War, and Afghanistan. The Fusiliers are deployed to various locations worldwide to prevent conflict and respond to disasters as well as enemy threats. In September 2007, 20-year-old Lee married his wife Rebecca in a military ceremony in West Yorkshire. The pair had first met as teenagers. Rebecca later fondly recalled Lee buying her tickets to a concert for popular Irish boy band Westlife. While everyone knew Lee was a romantic and thoughtful husband, it was no secret that he was a huge fan of the band. Rebecca had to chuckle at the gift which Lee insisted was for his wife. When it was clear, he was also excited about attending the concert. Lee received his first posting to the Mediterranean country of Cyprus as a machine gunner. Upon his return to Britain in 2008, he decided to undertake further training to join the drum corps in his regiment. Lee's battalion also fulfilled a range of public duties, including parades outside the royal palaces. On one posting, Lee performed in the household division's beating retreat at Horse Guards Parade. In April 2009, Lee was deployed for six months as a member of the Fire Support Group on the front line in Afghanistan's Helmand Province. His family were naturally worried about him being deployed so far away on such a high-risk tour. Lee knew his family were concerned, so when soldiers were wounded, he'd call home as soon as he could to reassure his family he was safe. Lee hadn't been away long when seven fusiliers serving alongside him died, including his mentor and platoon sergeant, which affected Lee profoundly and permanently. Only three months into his tour, Lee returned home to have painful gallstones removed. He was grateful to be home, but felt conflicted about leaving his comrades in Afghanistan, and his family could tell that the loss of his colleagues had affected him greatly. While he was home, Lee completed a second tour of public duties, and he and his wife Rebecca welcomed their son Jack in September 2010. Lee couldn't wait for Jack to get older, so he could take him to the palaces in London to show him where he'd worked. Lee then moved with his battalion to Sella in Germany, where they were on alert for contingency operations. In 2011, Lee returned home and took up a role with the regimental recruiting team at their headquarters at the Tower of London. Unfortunately, Lee and Rebecca's marriage broke down, and in the summer of 2012, the couple separated. In August that year, Lee met a soldier named Amy at a training camp in Wales, and the two fell for each other straight away. Lee proposed to Amy the following February, and the couple were looking forward to planning their future together. But the relationship hit a road bump when Amy was deployed to Afghanistan with the military police. Lee was devastated at the prospect of being apart for three months, terrified at what might happen to his beloved fiancé. He knew how dangerous Afghanistan was and begged Amy not to go. She promised to call home regularly and move ahead with their wedding planning. But this didn't stop Lee breaking down in tears when he dropped Amy at the airport. Lee started eagerly counting down the days until his fiancée was home safe and they can get on building a life together. The pair regularly sent each other text messages, 
with Lee professing his devotion in one message that said, My princess is coming home. I'm never going to let you go again. Ever. Part 2. Once a Fusilier, Always a Fusilier. By early 2013, Lee was living at the Royal Artillery Barracks in Woolwich, where he was stationed in the southeast London borough of Greenwich. On the afternoon of May 22nd, 25-year-old Lee was off duty. The night before, he'd been out with colleagues following a work function at the Tower of London. The function was a wedding fair, where Fusiliers provided hospitality services as part of their public duties. At one stage of the evening, Vendors at the fair were short on men to model wedding attire, so Lee volunteered to take up modeling duties on stage. His colleagues had a good-natured laugh at Lee, who loved the attention and thought of it all as good fun. The group kicked on afterwards, going out drinking until the early hours. Lee finally stumbled in the door at 4 a.m., so it was no surprise he felt the worse for wear the next day for his 8 a.m. shift. At a recruitment fair back at the Tower of London, In a stroke of good luck and kindness, his supervisor could tell that Lee was feeling the after-effects of the previous night and let him finish work early. After leaving work in the early afternoon, Lee caught the train back to the barracks. He arrived at Woolwich Arsenal Railway Station at 2.10pm and walked down to Wellington Street towards the barracks. Lee was carrying his army-issue rucksack and wearing a hoodie with the branding of the Help for Heroes charity. Just before 2.20 p.m., Lee ambled along Wellington Street, near the intersection of John Wilson Street. He checked the oncoming traffic before crossing the road in Artillery Place to go to a shop. Lee had no way of knowing that a car was heading straight for him until it was too late. Before he had time to wonder why the vehicle had swerved in his direction, Lee was hit from behind by a blue Voxel Tigra, estimated to be traveling at 30 to 40 miles per hour. The car had been traveling down the left-hand side of the road and suddenly veered right, gliding with Lee as he crossed the street. The force of the impact instantly knocked Lee up into the air and onto the bonnet of the car. The vehicle ran up onto the footpath where it came to a stop after colliding with a road sign. Unconscious, Lee rolled off the car and onto the ground. Two men jumped out of the vehicle and ran towards him, but they weren't coming to his rescue. The men were armed with guns, knives, and a meat cleaver. Converging on Lee, they dragged his body into the road, where they slashed and hacked at him in a frenzy. But three women in particular who came upon the scene sprang into action as what appeared to be a real-life horror movie unfolded before their eyes. Tina Nimmo and her daughter were driving through southeast London when they turned left into Artillery Place. One man was holding a gun, and a body lay on the ground in front of the damaged vehicle. Assuming that the lifeless man on the road had been shot, Tina got out of her car, asking if anyone had called the police. No one had. Tina approached the two men, shouting at them. She was desperate to stop them hacking at the neck of the man on the ground. What scared Tina was how calm the men looked as they assaulted their victim, later saying in an interview, This was a slaughter. It wasn't just a stabbing. 
It wasn't just a shooting. He didn't stand a chance. At the same time, Amanda Donnelly was driving through Woolwich with her daughter. She told the Sun newspaper that she saw a similar scene as Tina. Amanda jumped out of her car, racing towards the men, shouting at them to stop and leave the lifeless man on the ground alone. As Amanda approached the men, she could see that they were holding knives and a meat cleaver and were covered in blood. The men told Amanda that they didn't want to hurt women, but that civilians should leave the scene. One of the men handed Amanda a two-page handwritten suicide note addressed to my beloved children. It read in part, If I live beyond this day and you find me talking others than this, then know that perhaps Allah has left me to stray. If you find yourself curious as to why carnage is reaching your own towns, the note is simply retaliation for your oppressions in our towns. In shock, Amanda had no idea whether the man on the ground was dead or alive. She couldn't see how anyone could possibly have survived what she'd witnessed, but she was nonetheless desperate to get to him, to protect him from further harm. Amanda decided to appeal to the two attackers. The only way she knew how, she pleaded with them to let her as a mother tend to the man who was dying in the street. This seemed to work, and Amanda knelt on the ground, cradling Lee's blood-soaked body in her arms to comfort him. She knew he was dead, but she didn't want to let go, saying, I'm so sorry, I couldn't save you. Whoever you are, no one's going to hurt you anymore, son. It's all over now. Ingrid Loyal Kennett was aboard a bus passing the scene. After witnessing what she thought was a car accident, Ingrid decided to alight to render first aid. She could see the crashed car and Amanda stroking Lee's back as a man paced nearby. She assumed that they were waiting for paramedics to arrive. Ingrid approached Amanda as she was crouched near Lee's body, the hoodie covering his head. When Ingrid instinctively reached to remove the hood, she heard a male voice behind her say, Don't touch the body. Ingrid looked up to see the men standing near her. One was carrying a gun, the other a bloodied knife and meat cleaver. Upon realizing Lee was dead, but no police anywhere in sight, Ingrid's primary concern was that the men would kill someone else before law enforcement arrived. She knew she had to distract them somehow. So, like Amanda, Ingrid asked the men why they'd killed an innocent person. One brazenly replied he'd killed the soldier because he had killed Muslim in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Ingrid asked one of the men to hand over his weapons, but he refused. Tina, Amanda, and Ingrid found it odd that instead of fleeing the scene, the men stayed pacing about and almost appearing relaxed. Not only did they continue to actively engage with the steadily growing crowd of witnesses near the scene, they seemed to be enjoying the attention, proud of what they had just done. It was as if the men were waiting for something, but just what that was, nobody knew. By this time, some members of the public filmed the unfolding events on their phones. One of the men continued to lecture horrified onlookers that a soldier had been killed to avenge the death of Muslims at the hand of the British Armed Forces. With his hands covered in Lee's blood and clutching the bloody meat cleaver, the men was recorded by one person calmly looking into the camera saying, 
The only reason we have killed this man today is because Muslims are dying daily by British soldiers. And this British soldier is one. He is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. By Allah, we swear by the mighty Allah, we will never stop fighting you until you leave us alone. So what if we want to live by the Sharia in Muslim lands? Why does that mean you must follow us and chase us and call us extremists and kill us? When you drop a bomb, do you think it hits one person? Or rather, your bomb wipes out a whole family. Through many passages in the Quran, we must fight them as they fight us. I apologize that women had to witness this today. But in our lands, women have to see the same. You people will never be safe. Remove your governments. They don't care about you. You think David Cameron is going to get caught in the street when we start busting our guns? Do you think politicians are going to die? No. It's going to be the average guy, like you and your children. So get rid of them. Tell them to bring our troops back. Leave our lands and you will live in peace. That's all I have to say. Allah's peace and blessing be upon you. Police were called at 2.20 p.m., but as the minutes ticked by, vehicles continued to pass the scene, which presented a new difficulty. Vehicles needed to steer clear of Lee's body, as well as the men who continued to wander back and forth across the street, while the three women who had come to Lee's aid waited until police arrived. Tina took on the role of managing traffic in an attempt to divert vehicles away from the area. At 2.29 p.m., unarmed police arrived at the scene and quickly cordoned off the area. Armed officers arrived five minutes later at 2.34 p.m. Instead of retreating or surrendering, the men rushed at the police vehicle, brandishing their bloodied weapons before officers had a chance to exit the vehicle. One of the men was armed with a meat cleaver and a knife, while the other was wielding the gun and a knife. It was clear the men were ready to die at the hands of the police. Still in the police vehicle, officers opened fire on the men, shooting eight times and wounding them both in an attempt to disarm them. The man with the meat cleaver fell to the ground. The man with the gun was some yards away from the officers, who by now were out of the car. The man raised his gun to shoot, but the officers fired off four shots and the gunman fell to the ground. Even as he lay incapacitated, he raised his arm, still holding the gun. An officer fired again, shooting off the man's thumb. The men were arrested on suspicion of murder and immediately taken by ambulance to separate hospitals. A meat cleaver and eight knives were seized at the scene, as was the gun, which was found to be an unloaded and non-functioning antique KNIL 9.4mm revolver. British intelligence services and the Ministry of Defense immediately swung into action. Investigators swiftly executed searches of six houses in various areas of London, and one in Saxoby, Lincolnshire. The raids resulted in the arrest of eight people, three of them on suspicion of conspiracy to murder. Six of these people were released on bail, while two were not charged. Meanwhile, trickles of information started to spread across London from as early as 2.30 p.m. 
bits and pieces of unverified information started appearing on Twitter. As the afternoon wore on and news outlets gradually became aware of the gruesome nature of the attack, they were on the hunt to obtain video footage from witnesses who had captured the events. Only one CCTV camera was in the vicinity of the murder scene, but due to its position, it only partially captured what had unfolded. Broadcast media were therefore reliant on the public for any footage available. By the evening, the news had swept across the entire city, dominating social media and receiving saturation-level news coverage. The people of London were no strangers to acts of extremism, but the random and grisly nature of the murder, combined with the shocking images that were emerging, brought a new level of disbelief to the city. The mayor of London, Boris Johnson, told the media, It's pretty clear that what's happened tonight in Woolwich is a sickening and unforgivable act of violence. Shockwaves rippled throughout London and across the country as more disturbing details were confirmed. The Islamic Society of Britain publicly expressed concerns that the vicious attacks would incite division throughout the ethically diverse city. Preventing revenge attacks on the Muslim community in London and across Britain was at the forefront of the minds of law enforcement. In the hours following the killing, the commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police openly denounced the incident, reassuring the public of an increased police presence across the city and appealing for calm. Meanwhile, the video footage of one of the men explaining the motivation for the savage attack had made it to air on TV stations. ITN and the BBC, which chose to release an edited version, but the identity of the slain soldier remained unknown for several hours after the news initially broke. All the public knew was that the man had been brutally murdered in broad daylight. Around 5 p.m., Lee's sister Sarah made a distressed phone call to their mother, Lynn, to tell her that a soldier had been killed in Woolwich. Only days before, Lee had texted Lynn saying, Good night, Mom. I hope you had a fantastic day today, because you were the most fantastic one-in-a-million mom anyone could ever wish for. Thank you for supporting me all these years. You're not just my mom. You're my best friend. So good night, and love you loads. Understandably worried, Lynn called Lee, but his phone rang out. Lynn saw the incident on the evening news as she was getting ready to go to work. Even though available details were minimum, the knot in her stomach grew. No one had contacted herself or her husband, Ian. But when Lynn saw further news coverage after arriving at work, she knew in her heart that the pixelated image of the lifeless man lying on the road was her son. Ian picked Lynn up from work to take her home. The distraught mother was by now hysterical with anxiety that sprang from her intuition Despite her distress, Lynn was fixated on the news coverage, unable to drag herself away from watching the footage over and over again. As several TV stations ran the headline on repeat, there was still no official phone call. But in the early hours of the morning, as Lynn was preparing to go to bed, there was a knock at the door. It was the worst news any parent could receive. Lynn collapsed on the kitchen floor, screaming and wailing for her son. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, 
one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Meanwhile, Lee's fiance Amy had seen the news online from where she was posted in Afghanistan. Even though the vision in the news story was pixelated, she knew straight away it was her fiance. The couple had been texting only earlier that day, with Lee's last message to Amy saying, Princess, keep smiling for me. I know it's hard and you really want to come home, but just remember, I am always there for you, and I will always love you no matter what. We are on the home stretch. You always come first in my life. Amy tried to call Lee after she received his text, but his phone rang out. Amy faced an agonizing wait through the night for information about the identity of the dead soldier. When she was told the dreadful news, the army made arrangements for her to fly home immediately. By the next day, two emergency government meetings had already been held. In attendance were then-Home Secretary Theresa May, senior officials including then-Mayor of London Boris Johnson, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, and Assistant Commissioner, and other high-level representatives from British intelligence agencies. Then-Prime Minister David Cameron who chaired the second meeting the day after Lee's death, told the media, This country will be absolutely resolute in its stand against extremism and terror. This action was a betrayal of Islam and the Muslim communities that give so much to our country. We will defeat violent extremism by standing together. We will not rest until we know every detail. One of the best ways of defeating terrorism is to go about our normal lives. Prominent Muslim leaders were highly critical of the attack. Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Great Britain told the media, Muslim communities are united in their condemnation of this crime. It was a dishonorable act, and no one cause justifies cold-blooded murder. We convey our sympathy and condolences to the family of Lee Rigby, and we commend the dignity they have displayed. The attackers should reflect on their actions and seek repentance from the Almighty. They have tried to sow division in our society and have once again besmirched our great religion of Islam. They claim their act was done for those suffering in wars in Muslim lands 
but it is my contention that the vast majority of our affected brothers and sisters would have nothing to do with this phony act done in their name. Unfortunately, widespread calls for calm were ignored by far-right groups such as the English Defense League. Members of the group converged on Woolwich Arsenal Station in protest, throwing bottles at police who attended to break up the gathering. Other conservative groups also mobilized in London, but their coordinated efforts at disrupting the peace were quashed. At Lee's post-mortem, it was revealed that he had sustained five broken vertebrae in his back and five broken ribs as a result of the impact of the car hitting him from behind. As he lay crumbled on the footpath, Lee died from multiple incised wounds due to his neck being hacked at repeatedly with a cleaver and another knife in the attempt to behead him. Lee had to be identified by his dental records. Two days after Lee's murder, his family appeared at a press conference where his stepfather, Ian, spoke on their behalf. Lee's dream of growing up was always to join the army, which he succeeded in doing. He was dedicated and loved his job. Lee adored and cared a lot for his family, and he was very much a family man, looking out for his wife, his young son Jack, and his younger sisters who in turn looked up to him. He always had a banter with them, but would never, ever let any harm come to them. He was over the moon being a dad and an uncle, and he adored all his family. Lee was a man who loved people. He had many friends growing up in Middleton and on army duties all over the world where he'd been sent. He believed life was for living, and he would be sorely missed by all who knew him. Ian then read a heartbreaking poem written by Lee's sister, Sarah, which said, You fought bravely and with honor died. You leave your family so full of pride. Sleep well, young soldier. Your job is done. Your war is over. Your battle won. Our family chain is broken. Nothing is the same. But as God takes us one by one, our chain will link again. During an emotional interview with Sky News, Lee's estranged wife, Rebecca, broke down as she tearfully recalled that her late husband lived his life like a kid in a candy shop. Within five days of Lee's death, the Help for Heroes charity received more than £600,000 in donations. However, when it came to light that some of the donations were associated with far-right extremist groups, the charity openly stated it would not accept any such donations. Lee's family fully supported this move, issuing a statement saying, Lee would not want people to use his name as an excuse to carry out attacks against others. We would not wish any other families to go through this harrowing experience and appeal to everyone to keep calm and show their respect in a peaceful manner. The outpouring of grief by devastated Londoners was evident in the crowds of people who flocked to the site of the attack to pay their respects. Cards, balloons, and bouquets of flowers flooded the footpath. Manchester United paraphernalia and red and white flags bearing St. George's Cross adorned with sorrowful, heartfelt messages hung from fences nearby. Part 3. The Militants 
Lee's killers were identified as 28-year-old Michael Adebalajo and 22-year-old Michael Adebowale. At the time of the murder, both men were known to police and British intelligence agencies. Michael Adebalajo had previous convictions for assault, possessions of an air weapon, and bail offenses. From 2008 up until the day of the murder, he had been investigated by MI5 on five separate occasions. One of three children of Nigerian descent, Adebalajo was born in Lambeth in December 1984. His family eventually moved to Romford, east of London, where he grew up with his parents, who worked in nursing and social work. Raised as a Christian, Adebalajo enjoyed playing football. He attended Marshall's Park School and Havering Sixth Form College, where he was considered an intelligent and popular student with a down-to-earth attitude. But in his late teens, Adebalajo took to associating with an undesirable older crowd who engaged in antisocial behavior, such as phone theft and carrying knives. In 2004, the family left London's outskirts, moving to the town of Saxelby in Lincolnshire, a three-hour drive away. Adebalajo's parents hoped a change of scenery would have a positive influence on their errant son's behavior. Upon graduating high school in 2003, Adebalajo enrolled to study sociology at the University of Greenwich. Around this time, the 18-year-old was said to have converted to Islam, choosing the name Mujahid Abu Hamza, which is said to translate to one who engages in jihad. Adebalajo eventually dropped out of university in 2005 following a lackluster academic performance. Following his religious conversion, Adebalajo's interest in the extreme Islamist movement grew. He became more radicalized and started attending protests. Between 2005 and 2011, he also attended meetings of the extremist group, Al-Muhajirun, which was known to preach a distorted interpretation of Islam. Adebalajo began regularly distributing extremist literature on Woolwich High Street, along with other group members. This culminated in his arrest in 2006 while participating in a public demonstration outside the Old Bailey, the location of London's Central Criminal Court. The 21-year-old was later released. In 2009, 24-year-old Adebalajo attended a protest at a mosque on the outskirts of London. On this occasion, he was recorded on video footage speaking out against far-right-wing groups. By this stage, Anabalajo's extremist ideology was being shaped and reinforced by Al-Mahajarun leaders, whose meetings he continued to attend. By late 2010, 25-year-old Anabalajo was known to MI5. He'd made plans to travel to Kenya and Eastern Africa, then on to Somalia to train with the Al-Qaeda militant group Al-Shabaab. Before departing Britain, MI5 asked Anabalajo to be an informant for other members of the extremist groups he was associating with, but Anabalajo refused to cooperate and traveled to Kenya anyway, using a different surname. Before he could travel onwards to Somalia, Anabalajo was arrested in Kenya, with five others on suspicion of planning to join a terrorist group. He appeared in court, but no charges were laid. He was released to British authorities in Kenya and deported back to Britain. By May 2013, Anabalajo was married with four stepchildren and two of his own. Michael Adabawale was born in May 1991, and like his accomplice, 
was raised in a middle-class Christian family in Greenwich of Nigerian descent. Known to his friends as Toby, his mother was a probation officer, while his father worked at the Nigerian High Commission. As a child, Adebowale was known as a quiet boy who disliked school due to being a target of bullies. When he was 16 years old, Adebowale was the victim of a horrific knife attack, which also took the life of his best friend. The resulting trauma from the incident led to Adebowale developing mental health issues, and he started using skunk, a type of high-grade hydroponically grown cannabis. Around this time, Adebowale reported hearing voices including that of his previous assailant. He also started to associate with a local teenage gang whose members used drugs and ran afoul of the law. By 2008, 17-year-old Adebowale had served a year for drug offenses. In August 2011, Adebowale attracted the attention of MI5, who investigated him on two separate occasions, leading up to Lee's murder. By May 2013, he was living with his mother in Greenwich in southeast London. The media initially reported that Adebowale was also a former student of the University of Greenwich. However, the university shut down the rumor, saying there were no records of him ever attending. It was revealed that like Adebowale, Adebowale used his gang associations as a gateway to develop ties to extremist groups and radical clerics. The day before the attack, Michael Adebowale purchased a block of knives and a knife sharpener at an Argus store in Lewisham in London South. Around 8.30 a.m. on May 22nd, the two men met up at Adebowale's flat. At approximately 1 p.m., they drove towards Woolwich, casually scouring the area for anyone who appeared to be a member of the military. In the car, they had an unloaded gun, a meat cleaver, and eight knives. At 1.30 p.m., their vehicle was recorded on CCTV, driving in the vicinity of the Woolwich Barracks. The pair parked on Wellington Street, waited and watched. Adebolajo was the man who was later seen hacking at Lee's neck and who spoke to Ingrid and Amanda, handing her the note at the scene. He was also the man recorded in video footage speaking after the attack. Adebolajo was the first of the killers to rush towards the police when they arrived. Michael Adebowale was in possession of the gun during the attack and was the man who had his thumb shot off by armed officers in their attempts to disarm him. Part 4. Reverberations On May 28th, Michael Adebowale was discharged from hospital and taken to a police station in South London, where he was charged with Lee's murder and possession of a firearm. While in custody, Adebowale was aggressive. Within 24 hours of being detained, he lashed out at three officers at Westminster Magistrates Court. Adebowale punched one officer in the face, spat at others, and threw a glass of water at them during his initial police interview. In contrast, Adebowale's family issued a statement sending their condolences to Lee's family. Michael Adebowale was discharged from hospital into police custody three days later. As he spoke to police, it was clear from his domineering personality that he was the more dominant of the two killers. 
During his interview, Adebolajo maintained a detached demeanor while he recounted his version of events. We decided to wait. in the vicinity of the barracks that is in Woolwich. By the Qadr of Allah, by Allah's decree, whilst waiting to find a soldier, because between us we decided that the soldier is the most fair target because he joins the army with a with kind of an understanding that your life is at risk when you join the army you know um, so we sat in wait and uh, it just so happened that He was the soldier that was spotted first. Following his interview, Adabalaja was charged with murder, conspiring to murder a police officer, and possession of a firearm. He was held on remand until he would appear in court with his accomplice. In June 2013, the British government established an anti-terrorism task force aimed at preventing the spread of Islamic extremism throughout the country and targeting radicalization. Then-Prime Minister David Cameron chaired the task force and issued a statement saying, When young men born and bred in this country are radicalized and turned into killers, we have to ask some tough questions about what is happening in our country. It is as if that for some young people, there is a conveyor belt to radicalization that has poisoned their minds with sick and perverted ideas. We need to dismantle this process at every stage, in schools, colleges, universities, on the internet, in our prisons, wherever it's taking place. Despite the task force initiative, anti-Muslim backlash continued across the country. Far right-wing groups protested outside the prime minister's residence, capitalizing on Lee's death as an opportunity to aggressively push Islamophobic sentiment into the media spotlight. These same groups appropriated Lee's image and his case to promote anti-immigration rhetoric to support their own political campaigns. Lee's family were outspoken about their objection to Lee's memory being used this way and openly stated that neither Lee nor the family shared or endorsed such views. But this did little to quell the desire for revenge in some communities Two former soldiers were arrested soon after, in connection with petrol bombing a mosque in Lincolnshire. An Islamic center in North London was sprayed with graffiti and destroyed by a fire. Another fire at an Islamic boarding school in southeast London was suspected to be set by vigilantes. In the days and weeks following Lee's death, still images from the video footage dominated the front pages of many Britain's newspapers. The three women who had come to Lee's aid during the attack were dubbed the Angels of Woolwich. But there had been fallout from the broadcast of the footage on TV stations, ITN, and the BBC. The Guardian newspaper reported that around 800 complaints were received in the 24 hours following the broadcasts. Viewers complained that the footage of Anna Blasio carrying the meat cleaver in bloodied hands 
with Lee's body lying on the road in the background, was unnecessarily distressing. In mid-June, the British Communications Regulatory Body commenced an investigation regarding the airing of the footage. It was also around this time that the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament commenced an inquiry into Lee's murder. For the next 18 months, the committee would examine the actions of MI5, MI6, and the government communications headquarters regarding the two killers in the lead-up to the murder. Meanwhile, the focus of the police investigation had moved to proving the accused men were mentally fit to stand trial. During psychological assessments, Michael Adebowale reported hearing spirits, which was associated with his history of drug use. Despite being affected in this way, it was determined that at the time of Lee's murder, he was responsible for his actions. Adebowale, too, was assessed as mentally competent. Both men would face trial. The pain of Lee's loss hit those around him hard in unexpected ways. Even though he and his wife Rebecca had been separated for almost a year, they weren't divorced, and Lee hadn't updated his will. So as far as the army was concerned, Lee's fiance Amy wasn't his next of kin. Amy found the army not only failed to provide her with support, but actively excluded her from any decision-making and arrangements regarding Lee's funeral. The Rigby family later told the Mirror newspaper that they too felt pushed aside by the army, rallied around Amy in the midst of dealing with their own pain, showing Amy the kindness and consideration the army didn't. In her book, Lee Rigby, A Mother's Story, Lee's mother Lynn openly criticized the army's approach to the funeral arrangements, saying, Protocol took priority over compassion, and it was shameful. The night before Lee's military funeral in mid-July, his coffin was guarded by his fellow fusiliers at an overnight vigil. Thousands of people turned out to pay their respects to Lee at the service the following day at Barry Parish Church in Manchester, which was filled to capacity. In attendance were present and former soldiers, Prime Minister David Cameron and the Mayor of London. Loudspeakers outside the church broadcast the service to the crowd gathered outside. The wreath that lay atop the Union Jack flag draped over Lee's coffin said, Heaven has gained a hero. In a moving eulogy, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Taylor of the 2nd Fusiliers spoke fondly of Lee, saying, It was his lifelong ambition to be in the Army. Today we, his regimental family, Salute a fallen comrade, a talented soldier and musician, a larger-than-life character, a loyal friend, and a brother-in-arms, a gentle soul, an experienced and talented side drummer, and machine gunner. He was a true warrior and served with distinction. His ability, talent, and personality made him a natural choice to work in the recruiting group. He will be sorely missed by everyone. A private burial service followed at a nearby Middleton Cemetery, where Lee was laid to rest while a bugler played the last post, which was followed by a gun salute. Part 5. Sneaky Beaky (laughs) 
On September 27, 2013, the accused men appeared in court via video link. Both pleaded not guilty to murdering Lee, attempted murder of a police officer, and conspiracy to murder a police officer. Two months later, the trial began on November 29th. Far-right groups protested outside court, calling for reinstatement of the death penalty. Inside the court, Michael Adebowajo asked to be known by his Islamic name during the proceedings, while Adebowale wished to be known as Ismail Ibn Abdullah. The prosecutor told the court that the Islamic faith was not on trial, saying, To seek out and kill political opponents on the grounds that you say that they have oppressed your countrymen or people of your religion is still murder. The court heard that, after the men's arrest, they admitted to killing a soldier, but their defense was that they claimed to be soldiers too. In their eyes, they were soldiers of Allah, fighting a war. Adabawale's lawyer stated that their client agreed with Adabalajo's views. As painful as it was for Lee's family to hear, the prosecution was required to lay before the court the lurid details of the murder. The prosecutor told the court that one witness described Mr. Adabalajo like a butcher tacking a joint of meat. As he continued his assault on Lee, Adabalajo tried to decapitate the soldier. Wadabawale stabbed and cut him. They wanted the members of the public present to see the consequences of their barbarous acts. They had committed a cowardly and callous murder by deliberately attacking an unarmed man from behind, using a vehicle as a weapon. The court heard that Adabalajo then reportedly hacked at the right side of Lee's neck, just below his jaw with the meat cleaver, while holding him by the hair almost decapitating him. At the same time, Adabawale stabbed at Lee's chest and torso. Another witness statement read in court said Adabawale looked like he'd escaped from a mental hospital. The witness stated Adabawajo stared at me with a blank expression that was pure evil. His eyes were bulging. The armed officer who drove the police car that was ambushed by Adabawajo told the court about coming face-to-face with the extremist, recalling the moment he saw Adabalajo rushing towards him, wielding the bloodied meat cleaver. The officer testified, I instantly thought he was going to kill me. His eyes were so wide, I could see the whites of them. Firearms officer who was a passenger in the same vehicle told the court, The second he started sprinting at us, I made the decision to fire. I needed to stop him. On December 19, 2013, after a three-week trial, a jury handed down their unanimous verdict. Both men were found guilty of Lee's murder. However, they wouldn't be sentenced until the new year. The verdict was somewhat of a relief for Lee's family, but it was also less than a week before they would be facing the first of many Christmases without him. In early January 2014, the broadcast watchdog published its findings into the investigation of the complaints against various media outlets for airing the video footage immediately following Lee's murder. The regulatory body ruled that broadcast of the footage had not breached regulations, explaining that the detailed coverage was justified by the context. However, revised guidelines were issued 
instructing media outlets to provide appropriate warnings in the future prior to broadcasting distressing content. On February 26, 2014, the convicted killers were back in court for sentencing, this time wearing Islamic robes. The Crown Prosecutor again took the court through the detailed eyewitness statements of those who bravely stepped in to help Lee, not knowing if they would be the next victim. The prosecutor told the court about the permanent scar Lee's loss had inflicted on his family, saying, The scale of the impact on them, of the nature of the murder of Lee, and the circumstances made so public during the trial, and after such a killing causing a son to predecease his parents and stepfather, and leave those others who loved him without a husband or a soulmate, is too obvious to set out in detail. He had, as your lordship knows, a young son. All their lives have been irreparably changed, for the worse. Lee's estranged widow, Rebecca, read a victim impact statement to the court, saying her son has to see images of his dad that no son should ever have to endure. Rebecca told the court that following Lee's murder, I couldn't go out or do anything. I felt like I didn't want to go on. I saw people nudging and looking at me. If I tried to walk down the street, it was surreal. Of all the feelings I have, the one thing that overrides everything is that I know my son will grow up and see images of his dad that no son should ever have to endure. There's nothing I can do to change this. When you wave someone off, you accept that there is a chance you will never see them again. You do not expect to see this on the streets of Britain. Lee will never be forgotten. We will always love him and miss him every day. Ian Rigby told the Corps how he felt watching the sickening footage of his stepson's attack, saying, After all he had been through in Afghanistan, all Lee was doing was just walking through London, just seeing on the television and seeing the violence of it. You can't comprehend it. You take it all in, and it doesn't click in your head. It's like being somewhere else. You're watching it without actually being there. When it came time for Mr. Justice Sweeney's sentencing remarks, he described the extremist views of the attackers as a betrayal of Islam. He went on to say, You each converted to Islam some years ago. Thereafter, you were radicalized, and each became an extremist. Pandemonium suddenly erupted in the court. Upon hearing Justice Sweeney's comment, Michael Adebowale exploded in a rage, screaming, That's a lie. It's not a betrayal of Islam. Adebowale shouted, Alua Akbar. Both men scuffled with security guards who eventually restrained them on the floor. As both men were removed from the court and led down to the cells, their shouts echoed through the building. Sentencing continued in the men's absence, Justice Sweeney stating, What the two of you did resulted in a bloodbath. Your sickening and pitiless conduct was in stark contrast to the compassion and bravery shown by the various women at the scene who tended to Lee Rigby's body and challenged what you had done and said. You have shown no regret for this barbaric murder. Neither of you, I'm sure, has any real insight into the enormity of what you did nor any generous remorse for it either. Your only regret is that you did not succeed in your plan to be shot dead. The accused men were both sentenced to life imprisonment. Justice Sweeney said, 
There was no hope of rehabilitation for Adebolajo, who received a whole life order without the possibility of parole. Adebowale was sentenced to serve at least 45 years. Following sentencing, a police issued a statement on behalf of Lee's family, saying, We would like to thank the judge and the courts for handing down what we believe to be the right prison terms. We would also like to thank everyone who has supported us in the last nine months. It has brought us a lot of comfort, and we feel satisfied that justice has been served for Lee. We now ask to continue to grieve in private. In early April 2014, Michael Adebalajo appealed his whole life term sentence. Almost four months later, the BBC reported that a judge refused his application, but Adebalajo wouldn't be deterred, forging ahead for his case to be heard by the Court of Appeal. That same month, Michael Adebowale was transferred to a high-security psychiatric facility at Broadmoor Hospital. He remained there for the next 14 months until he was transferred to a maximum security prison in Yorkshire. In June 2014, Lee's family attended a moving ceremony at the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire. His name had been added to Britain's largest military memorial alongside 16,000 other troops who had lost their lives serving their country. The first permanent memorial to Lee had been erected four months earlier at the football stadium of Charlton Football Club, less than a mile from where he was murdered. The Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament released their findings into the actions of British intelligence services. The highly detailed report revealed that prior to the murder, the killers appeared in seven different investigations, but mostly as low-level reoccurring subjects of interest. Despite MI5 and the British Foreign Office being aware of Michael Adebolajo's 2010 arrest in Kenya and his subsequent deportation, there was no ongoing monitoring following his return to Britain. MI5 first discovered contact between the men in April 2012, but further analysis revealed they had actually been in contact since August 2010. The pair had further contact from December 2012 to April 2013. Intrusive monitoring of Adebolajo by MI5 during this period revealed that he was involved in drug dealing. However, nothing in his activities indicated concerns relating to national security. On this basis, MI5 appropriately ceased their coverage of Adebolajo in April 2013. When it came to Michael Adebowale's activities, the BBC reported that prior to Lee's murder, seven of the convicted killer's Facebook accounts had been blocked. Five of these were due to automatic flags for links with extremism. Adebowale had been a high priority for MI5 during two operations. Neither of these revealed any evidence he was planning an attack and MI5 closed their investigation into him in June 2012. However, the parliamentary report found that no manual follow-up had been conducted by Facebook to check the problematic accounts. In the most concerning revelation, the report revealed that in December 2012, Adabawale had an online exchange with an extremist based overseas. The man, codenamed Foxtrot, was connected to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. In graphic terms, Adebowale had told the man about his desire to murder a soldier. However, 
intelligence agencies didn't have access to the details of this online conversation until June 2013, a month after Lee's death. The committee considered this Facebook exchange significant. If on the had MI5 been able to access the conversation at the time, the investigation of Adabawale would have become a top priority. Given the cumulative nature of available intelligence, this meant there was a possibility the attack could have been prevented. However, there was no effective process in place at the time for MI5 to manage a large group of individuals who may have posed a risk to national security but weren't under active investigation. The BBC reported that the killers were in contact 39 times between April 11th and May 22nd, 2013. This included seven attempted calls and 16 text messages exchanged the day before Lee was murdered and one phone call on the morning of the murder. None of the text messages between the two men in the days leading up to the attack revealed any indication of attack planning or anything of significance. Adabalajo's determination to hide his intentions proved successful because at the time the report was released, British intelligence were still unable to discover how the men communicated with each other to actually orchestrate the attack. The parliamentary report concluded that based on the information held by British intelligence and security services at the time of Lee's murder, it could not have been prevented. The report highlighted what British security agencies described as considerable difficulty accessing content from numerous online platforms, including Facebook, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Twitter, and Yahoo. The report conceded that even if MI5 had been able to access Michael Adebowale's Facebook exchange prior to the attack, it was unlikely they would have cooperated. This was because the social media giant didn't have procedures to prevent terrorists from planning attacks using its networks, instead relying on users to report such content. Going even further, Facebook didn't consider themselves responsible for identifying and reporting threats to national security to relevant authorities. The report noted that several online platforms attributed their lack of monitoring of this content to the need to protect users' privacies. However, the committee rejected this argument, where circumstances indicated that it was possible that a terrorist atrocity was being planned. According to the independent newspaper following the report, Facebook issued a response, stating it didn't comment on individual cases. The website only stated that its policies don't allow terrorist content to be posted, and that the platform proactively prevents members from using the website for those purposes. In an interview with the BBC, a former global counterterrorism director of MI5 and MI6 said he felt it was impractical and unfair to expect social media sites to both monitor communications for terrorist content and report this to security agencies. He told the Guardian newspaper that online platforms were limited in their ability to trawl through the volume of content handled by websites each day. He was also skeptical about the capacity of security services to process the volume of information referred to them if an obligation was placed on online companies. But despite the outcome of the review... Lee's family told the Telegraph newspaper they still blamed MI5 and Facebook for failing to prevent Lee's death. Lee's sister Sarah reportedly told the Sun newspaper that Facebook had her brother's blood on their hands. A month later, the Court of Appeal rejected both Adebowale and Adebowale's appeals against their sentences. Michael Adebowale was seeking to have his conviction overturned and his sentence reduced. <laughs> 
Wahadabawale sought a reduction for his minimum sentence of 45 years. In 2015, further memorials were unveiled in Lee's honor, one in his hometown of Middleton. Lee's name was also inscribed on a marble plaque on a wall of the memorial garden inside St. George's Garrison Church in Woolwich. In early June 2018, Michael Adabalajo spoke of his regret for killing Lee and apologized, expressing his desire to send a written apology to the Rigby family. Adabalajo claimed he was brainwashed and had misinterpreted the Quran for his own ends. Lee's mother, Lynn, publicly responded that she did not accept Adabalajo's apology and would never forgive him. Lee's father, Phil, echoed Lynn's sentiments, telling the Sun newspaper, I'm appalled he even thought about writing us. I wouldn't accept it. I'd burn it. How can he apologize? He didn't show any emotion when he murdered Lee, did he? Perhaps it's just a stunt on his behalf to get him out early. But it's a big shock. A month later, Michael Adabawale, who had since changed his name to Ismail Kuti, was charged with assaulting a nurse at Broadmoor Hospital, where he was being treated for chronic paranoid schizophrenia. Adabawale pleaded guilty and received an additional eight-month sentence. By late 2019, Michael Adabalaja was said to be actively participating in and facilitating a de-radicalization program in prison. Even though he will never be released, he is said to maintain his regret for murdering Lee, now describing the murder as a misguided attack on an institution. The impact of Lee's death has understandably left deep and permanent emotional and psychological scars. Not just on his immediate family, but also on the witnesses who intervened on that spring day, running towards danger instead of away from it, placing themselves at risk without a second thought. Ingrid, the bus passenger, later won bravery awards for her role in confronting the murderers but she later told the independent newspapers that she has since been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and is no longer able to hold down a job. Ingrid has expressed her regret over her decision to intervene, saying the long-lasting effects has ruined her life. Lee's fiance Amy, has also been diagnosed with PTSD and depression. Despite these struggles, the Mirror newspaper reported that she followed through on the plans she and Lee had to run the 2014 Paris Marathon. Amy's efforts raised 20,000 pounds for British Armed Forces Charity, the Soldiers, Sailors, Airmen, and Families Association. In an effort to find meaning in Lee's senseless death, his family established the Lee Rigby Foundation. The charity aims to provide a support network and respite for bereaved families of serving personnel and veterans, including those who are victims and survivors of terrorist incidents. Lynn continues to visit her son's grave each week, telling the Daily Mail newspaper, When Lee was alive, he took bereaved parents to his heart. That's why I was determined to honor and remember him by doing something to help others. I believe Lee is guiding all this. At least in my heart he is, and I feel he is with me every step of the way, but there is still a long road ahead. Listener, if you'd like to support the valuable ongoing work of the Lee Rigby Foundation and the Help for Heroes charity by making a tax-deductible donation, please see the links in the show notes on your app or on our website. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.